0: We've been talking about the nature of reality and in particular how that is related to the most dear thing in it to ourselves, our sense of me or I. One of the most difficult things to understand in the Buddha's teachings is what exactly Buddha meant by selflessness and what the Mahayanists call emptiness. Did he mean there was no self at all and was he referring to only people or both people and things? If there is no self, How can karma pass from one reincarnation to another? It seems from our experience that a self definitely does exist, and if the Buddha didn't mean there was no self at all, what exactly did he mean? The questions around this can be endless, and the answers can just lead us further and further into confusion if we are not careful. So it's best to take this whole topic slowly and not get too pushy about trying to understand what it all means. Anyway, only an intellectual understanding will not lead us to freedom from suffering. We need to integrate emptiness into our minds to such an extent that it becomes the very way we view reality reality experientially. And that takes a lot of time, effort and meditation. To remind those who were with us last week and inform anyone who wasn't, emptiness here does not mean total lack of all existence. It does not mean that at all. It means a lack of a specific kind of existence, unfortunately is exactly the kind of existence we are convinced we are dealing with. Emptiness means a lack of inherent, independent existence. Basically it means nothing exists with its own self or mode of existing. It only exists as an expression of causes, conditions and parts, labelled as a group. So as we noted last week, I don't have an inherent, independent quality at all. I only exist as a collection of all the causes that led me to becoming an English-speaking male human being aged 62 in New Zealand, all the conditions that allowed those causes to ripen and the parts that are made up by those causes and conditions. Of course, each part exists in exactly the same empty way and each part of a part does so also. We also have to factor in the mind that labels Tenzin, and then we get an indication of how Tenzin really exists. If we just leave recognition to our familiar way of relating to things, we instinctively grasp as if there is some kind of real, independent Tenzin here that does not depend on his mother and father's substances to form a fetus, all the air he's breathed, all the food and drink he's consumed, warmth, and so on. It does not depend on his body and mind complex, nor the mind that labels this whole complex Tenzin. But that independent Tenzin does not exist at all, and in fact nothing exists the way that we grasped it. The Buddha indicated, and the great master Nagarjuna explained, that nothing exists independently at all. Everything is a dependent arising. It arises and continues depending on other things. Last week we looked at the consequences if the I existed as we instinctively think it does. First we investigated and brought clearly to mind this I, which we call the object of negation. Then we looked at the ways it could possibly exist. Either it exists as inherently one with a body-mind complex, in Eastern psychology known as the five aggregates form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness, or it exists as inherently different from the five aggregates. Of course, we could say it exists both inherently one with and separate from the five aggregates, but that would be ludicrous. We could also say in terms of logic, it could exist neither inherently one with the five aggregates nor separate from them, but that would also be ridiculous, for if the I exists neither one with nor separate from the aggregates, how could it possibly exist at all? so essentially it exists either as inherently one with or inherently separate from the five aggregates. We then considered the consequences of the I existing inherently one with the aggregates and found ten consequences that would make such an existence untenable. We also examined the results of the I existing inherently separate from the aggregates and those also brought forth a number of ridiculous consequences. So we came to the conclusion that the I could neither exist inherently one with the aggregates nor could it exist inherently separate from them. The only conclusion was that the inherently existing independent I cannot exist at all. Only a de- dependent I is possible. Once again I must emphasize that Buddhism does not believe that no I exists at all. That would be a nihilistic point of view and Buddhism stresses that it's more difficult to get to the right understanding from that stance than from our present view of inherent existence. The way the I exists is as a label on a collection of causes, conditions and parts which form the base for the label. That is all. There's no little person in the control tower even though we think there is. There's no permanent inherent soul although many religions teach there is. When you peel away all the layers of the onion that is a person, you do not find something definable and separate in the center. Take away all the parts, causes, conditions and the label and you will find nothing else at all. But you can see that the I does exist. If it did not exist at all, I could give you a big smack and there would be nothing or nobody to feel it. And this is contrary to our experience. If I give you a big smack, then you will no doubt yell at me, or even smack me back. Some schools of Buddhism say that the person lacks a self, but that phenomena like tables, chairs, and dune buggies all have an inherently existing characteristic. Otherwise, how could we distinguish between them? However, Nagarjuna went to some lengths to point out that phenomena are also empty of inherent existence. He even explained how emptiness itself is empty of inherent independent existence. Emptiness is a non-affirming negative. That means that when we say things are empty of something, it doesn't mean that they are full of something else. If a tank always contains either water or molasses, when someone says to me there is no molasses in the tank, I can safely assume it has water in it. But emptiness is not like that. If something is proved empty of inherent existence, that doesn't mean it contains some other type of ultimate existence and it doesn't prove that emptiness is some kind of ultimate inherent existence underlying everything either. Emptiness itself is a dependent arising and is empty, so emptiness does not replace ultimate existence. If this seems very confusing, don't worry about it. But several books go some way to explaining it if you want to explore it further. His Holiness the Dalai Lama goes into it in books like Transcendent Wisdom, a commentary on the ninth chapter of Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It is also very simply explained in Geshe Loden's The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism. But the best would be to find a qualified teacher to go through it with you. In Auckland, you will find good teachers in any of the Tibetan Buddhist centers. Usually emptiness is not taught until students have a good grounding on the other topics on the graduated path to enlightenment. However, because we've gone through all those topics in this program over the last year or so, and this is the final topic on that path, I feel that I have to say something about it. However, it is very complex, and I do not understand it well myself, so this is really just an outline. If it's too confusing for you, Concentrate on the other topics, like the preciousness of this human rebirth, death and impermanence, refuge, the Four Noble Truths, and so on. Concentrating on these will purify your mind and make it easier to, do, to understand emptiness later on. Now after that caveat, and before we go any further, let's take time to set our motivation for this program as usual, thinking that we are participating to attain enlightenment, to benefit not only ourselves but all other suffering beings as well that is the greatest motivation and its energy continues until we reach enlightenment so please take a moment to set such a mo- such a motivation if you really can't at least motivate for your own liberation from suffering thank you now before we go on to examine the emptiness of phenomena I am going to read what Geshe Loden says about dependent arising. If anything is the cornerstone to understanding the Buddha's teachings on emptiness, it is dependent arising. If we can properly understand the relationship between dependent arising and the lack of an inherent existence of things and persons, we will be well on the way to, to, to liberation from suffering. So you can see that dependent arising is very important. I find Geshe-Loden explains it in simple language that is easy to understand, even though the topic can be complex, especially if we are unfamiliar with it or we are very used to seeing things as independent. This is what he says. Everything depends on something else for its existence. Short only comes into existence, independence on tall. Big depends on small. Good depends on bad. Death depends on birth. Even Buddhas are dependent. Shakyamuni Buddha is dependent on ordinary beings because without them he could not have become a a Buddha. Sentient beings are the objects of the practice of the six perfections and therefore provide the opportunity to achieve enlightenment. All the Buddha's limitless powers and qualities are gained in dependence on ordinary beings because it is in relation to them that Buddhas complete their accumulations of merit and wisdom. Conversely, the happiness of ordinary beings depends on Buddhas. If there were no Buddhas, then we could have no teaching showing what the causes of happiness are and what methods to use to cultivate them. Do you get what he's saying? Let's look at it a bit more closely. Short only comes into existence in dependence on tall, big depends on small, good depends on bad, death depends on birth we can only make a judgment about something based on its opposite. For instance, we can only say something is short if we have something taller to compare it with. If everybody on the earth was the same height, we'd have no need of words like short and tall, referring to humans. Now, I'm six foot two inches, and compared to my sister who's five foot something, I'm tall. But compared to my brother, who I think was close to six foot six, I'm a shorty. A giraffe is tall compared to an ostrich, but compared to a 50-foot Brachiosaurus dinosaur, a 17-foot giraffe would be a dwarf. So you see, we cannot talk about tall or small without some comparison, which means that both tall and short depend on each other. Similarly, big depends on small. We can only say an elephant is big because we compare it to all the other animals that are uniformly smaller than it. If we suddenly saw an elephant beside a Tyrannosaurus rex, we would have to reform our opinion and admit that the elephant is pretty minuscule. With nothing to compare the elephant to, we would have to keep silent, for then big and small would be meaningless. In the same way, good depends on bad. We can only define something as good if we compare it to something else that we've labelled bad. For most human meat-eaters, Rotting meat is bad because, because compared to fresh meat, it reeks and can make them sick. However, in contrast to a blowfly, rotting meat is the greatest. Not only is it a tasty meal, but also a nest for eggs and larvae. And, of course, Geshe-Loden's statement, Death depends on birth, is obvious, because nothing can die unless it is first born. Geshe-Loden then goes on, Just reading this book, or perhaps we can substitute here just listening to this program, and your continued practice of Dharma depends on the society in which you live. If there were no community, you could not receive teachings, do retreats, help other people, or progress towards enlightenment, because there would be no object for the practice of Dharma. The very existence of your body is dependent on the sperm and egg of your parents'. As you grow, your body depends on food, shelter, clothing, warmth, medicine and so on. Your body is always dependent on other factors. Without food, for example, your body would degenerate very quickly. It would soon be so weak that you would be incapable of doing anything and would eventually die. Your speech is also dependent on other conditions, such as terms and concepts. For example, if there were no concept of female... There would be no concept of male, and vice versa. The whole universe is a dependent arising. The sun, stars, planets, the earth, mountains, rivers and oceans are dependent arisings. Take the ocean. Generally, we think of the ocean as a large, deep, cold mass of blue water. We use the term ocean and conceive of it as inherently and substantially existent. However, if we investigate further and analyze the source of the ocean, the nature of the ocean and its characteristics, we discover that the fixed concept of an inherently existent ocean is incorrect. Analysis reveals that the ocean is dependent on the four elements, on the atoms that make up water molecules, on rivers, rains, clouds and sun. On the aggregation of these things, we can apply the label ocean but there is no independently existent ocean. Countries are dependent arisings. risings. Australia is dependent on its land, society and government. It depends on its parts, the states, islands, deserts, bush and gum trees. We can say that Australia has been only in existence for about 200 years. Prior to that, it was a sparsely inhabited continent with no government or constitution and was not designated Australia. Now, although Geshe is using Australia here as an example because he is based there, the same can, of course, be said of New Zealand. Before people came and settled here in about 1200 CE, only islands, volcanoes and bush existed here. There was no New Zealand. Then the polynesians landed and created their own social structures and customs still no new zealand existed only when abel tasman landed in december 1642 and called the land stuttenland which later became nova zealandia and new zealand when captain cook anglicized it did new zealand finally appear and the country only exists as a collection of islands people government society and the history that formed it all, with a label New Zealand. New Zealand exists in no other way than this, and no independent New Zealand can be found anywhere. Geshe Loden then continues emptiness itself depends on other things. Emptiness depends on dependent arisings, and dependent arisings depend on emptiness. If things were all independent, there would be no such thing as emptiness. It's precisely because they are dependent on other things that we can say they have no inherent existence. Talk about their emptiness and demonstrate how it exists. Take, for example, a laptop. Its existence is dependent on the plastic case, the hard drive, the CPU, memory chips, screen, keyboard and so on. Because it's dependent on all its parts, as well as all the causes and conditions that went into making those parts and combining them into a computer, we can analyze and find it has no independent existence. It is empty of inherent existence. That emptiness depends on the computer not being an independent entity, for if it was, it would have its very own unique style of existence not affected by other things and so unchanging. It could then not function as a computer or any, anything else, for function necessarily means change. Similarly, something cannot arise dependent on other things if it is by nature independent, for then we would have a contradiction in terms and an impossibility in fact. So it cannot be empty if it is independent. Thus, dependent arisings depend on emptiness and vice versa. Geshe Loden then goes on to explain that Buddhahood is also a dependent arising. He says, it depends on the practice of the five paths of the Mahayana, Bodhicitta, the twenty emptinesses, the twelve dependent links and so on. Buddhahood is a cessation of suffering and this depends on the path of cessation. The path of cessation depends on the first two noble truths, true suffering and true source. Everything is interdependent. Without knowing dependent arising, you cannot know emptiness. The king of reasons supporting emptiness is that all phenomena are empty of inherent existence because they are dependent arisings. It is therefore very important to recognize the dependent nature of all things. So there we have gone through a number of examples of dependent arisings and I hope you have some idea how dependent arising and emptiness cannot be separated. They are so interrelated that they cannot be considered apart. In his book, Geshe Loden then goes on to consider the emptiness of phenomena. We've already discussed the emptiness of persons in a previous program, so now we're going to see what it means to say phenomena are empty. Here, phenomena means everything that's not a person. Geshe Loden says the five aggregates and externals such as houses, mountains, trees and so on all fall into this category and give some good examples. For instance he talks first about one's body. I guess because this is usually what people hold most dear. Even a pinprick from a thorn can give people so much pain as if their whole body had been damaged instead of only one small part of it. Our reaction may be quite out of proportion. Kishi Loden points out that the body is not the four limbs, nor is it the head, the trunk or flesh, the genes, the blood, organs, bones, nerves, DNA, all the atoms that make the body up. No matter where we look, we will not be able to find a real and independent body. The more you search for a body amongst its parts, geshe says, the more elusive it becomes. It is an emptiness and has no inherent existence. Then he goes on to show that a house is not its walls, its pillars, roof or glass. The house cannot be found separate from its parts, Nor does a house exist as one with its parts. It only arises independence on its parts. And so do do cars, televisions, tables and so on. Each can be analysed and shown to arise dependent on its parts. And those parts are also not independent but rely on other things for their existence. Another good example he uses is money. He writes, You look at a banknote and say this is a hundred dollars. Other people agree that it's this thing of value and will give you goods in exchange for it. But where is the value? Where is the money? The paper is not the money valued $100. The numbers are not the money. The design, the watermark or color are not the money. You cannot assign the name money to a color photocopy of the original note. But depending on special paper, size, shape, color, design design, numbers, watermark and so on you can assign the label $100. It will actually perform the function of $100 because it exists by way of convention even though ultimately it is empty of inherently being $100. Now once we've realized the emptiness of one thing it becomes easy to realize the emptiness of everything else because the base for analysis is the same. As we have mentioned before, it is taught that it is easier to realize the emptiness of the self first and from that realization the emptiness of all other phenomena will flow easily. When we have realized emptiness of both persons and phenomena, we will no longer see any object as inherently attractive or repulsive and so the afflictive emotions will no longer arise. We will no longer create karma and the cause for our suffering will have stopped. Geshe Loden recommends that whenever we do a purifying practice we should remember that the self is empty, the action of purification is empty and the negativity we are purifying is empty of any inherent inherent independent existence. This understanding is the greatest antidote to our grasping, grasping at inherent existence as the true mode of existence. He then goes on to examine the mind itself and says that it is a continuum of past, present and future instances of consciousness, and shows how, if the present moment of consciousness did not depend on the past instant and be the cause for the next moment of consciousness, the mind could not exist. Without the present moment, depending on its past moments, we could not remember or think. We could not say, yesterday I did such and such, nor could we say, I thought this last week and so on. We would not be able to say, I will think about it. If the present moment of consciousness was independent of past moments, how could we remember what we did in the past? No link would exist between the moments of consciousness to allow memory. Also, if all the moments were independent, it would be impossible to purify the mind and reach enlightenment because we would not be able to improve the mind. The fact that we can remember what happened in the past and we can attain enlightenment shows that the moments of mind form a continuum of moments of consciousness all dependent on each other. We can also say that if the visual consciousness was not a continuum but rather a number of discrete instances we could never distinguish between shapes and colours. How could we get to know a white rectangular wall from a round blue swimming pool? And it's the same with all our sense consciousnesses. If all our sense consciousnesses consisted of discrete instants, we would not be able to discriminate between various sights, sounds, tastes and so on. We can only do so because each sense consciousness is a continuum of moments dependent on one another. Even the omniscient mind of the Buddha is dependent arising. If it did not depend on all the continuums of previous moments, Causes and conditions that produced it, and in fact the continuum of its future moments, it would always have existed as an enlightened mind, and it would be impossible for someone who did not have it to ever achieve it. We can also, following the example of the path to enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, see how time is empty of inherent existence. We know from science that time is a dependent arising. Einstein's theory of special relativity tells us that time and space are dependent on each other, one result of which is that where you are determines how fast you are aging. If two twins are separated, one staying on Earth and the other going for a fast jaunt out in space, when the space traveler returned, he would be older than the twin that stayed on Earth because time would have moved faster for him. So even putting the Buddhist proof aside, we can show that time is a dependent arising. The Buddhist proof is not quite as startling as Einstein's. It goes like this. Take a year, for instance. If we search among its parts, its months, weeks, days and so on, we will not find an independently existing year. A month is not a year, nor is a week, nor any day. Even a collection of months other than twelve a year Only that collection from January to December can be designated a year. Where is the year 2011? We can't say it's the month of January, for January has 31 days and a year has 365. Also, January is only one month, whereas a year, by definition, has 12 months. Can we point to any point of time in our current year and say that it is 2011? Can we separate 2011 out from the 12 months between the precise end of 2010 and the precise beginning of 2012? It is impossible. So 2011 is a dependent arising, reliant on the 12 months, which are in turn reliant on a particular number of days, and so on. Now we've run out of time and must say goodbye. Thank you for joining me today and do so again next week.